Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and to learn how to honor and glorify Him. Let me encourage you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to learn about Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. Paul worked as an evangelist in quite a number of congregations. We certainly are not surprised to find that with some of them, he was able to develop a very close relationship. We look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, we find out that he was able to stay three years in Ephesus. It says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He was in Ephesus for three years. And as you look at Acts chapter 20, we recognize how close Paul had come with them. This was a group of people that Paul loved. This wasn't just a church that he worked with. They were close to one another. And so when you come over to the book of Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 down through verse 19, you hear Paul talking about the prayer that he prays for these Ephesians. This is not just some prayer that he throws out flippantly. This is the prayer that comes from his heart. A prayer of love for these brethren that he loves. A prayer for these people that he's worked with, that he's developed, that he wants to grow. And as we consider that, I think it just becomes only natural for us as we look at this congregation and for those of you who are guests, members of other congregations, as you look at your congregation, as you pray, and as we pray for the churches of which we are a part, that we ought to pray for these very same things, these things that Paul mentioned. These ought to be our goals for the congregation here. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. As we take a look at this passage, these prayers that Paul had for the Ephesians, there are four keys here, four goals that he mentions, four desires that he wants for those brethren that we need to make our own. And I pray that we do make them our own and that we do pray for them. I want us to examine this morning these goals, these prayers, and learn to make them our own. Before we do that, let's pray. Glorious God and Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you because you are honorable and worthy. You are deserving of honor. Yours is the power and the glory and the dominion. And we're humbled in your presence and awe of your might and your power. This devastation that we've seen in our nation over the past week, we recognize is small compared to the power that you have in your hand. And Father, we pray that because of the power in your hand that you will set up a distinction between your people and those who have refused you, that you will bless your children, that we will be protected from harm, and Father, that your children in these regions will be able to stand out as examples to those around them, and that you will... Bless them with Your mercy and grace as they strive to recover. We pray that Your children will have been protected from great harm 
and from damage and that they will, what damage they have suffered, that they will be able to overcome quickly. We pray for our brethren, Kenny and the one who went with him, and also David Bowman and his travels with his work to help with the hospital situation. We pray that you would be with each of these in, in their endeavors and bless them and keep them safe. Father, we pray that you would be with our efforts as individuals and as congregation to help your brethren, help your children. We pray that you would strengthen us and provide us with blessings that we might be a blessing to others. Father, we especially pray today that you might give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. The eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word and to glorify and to honor and praise your name. Be with us as we worship you this morning, that everything we do will be in accord with your word, and that we'll take what we learn here and take it with us as we go out into the world, that we can be shining lights for your will. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. As you take a look at this passage, the very first thing that I want you to notice is it says that Paul prayed that God would give to the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him and the knowledge of Christ or in the God. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul is praying for these brethren that they might have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. In the biblical context, Paul's prayer here is that God would make a distinction between those who are His children and those who are in the world. Look in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11. Paul tells us in verse 8 of Romans 11, Romans 11 and verse 8, about the folks in the world. And there he says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Paul is saying, don't let these brethren at Ephesus be like the world. You've given the world a spirit of stupor. They can't see, they can't hear. Don't do that to your children. For your children, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Let the eyes of their heart understand and be enlightened. Interestingly, if we take a look at the context of the passage from which Paul is quoting in Romans 11:8, we'll go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 29. And in Isaiah chapter 29, beginning at about verse 9, we see exactly why God had given the world a spirit of stupor. It says in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 9, Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk but not with wine. They stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep or a spirit of stupor. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your head or your ears, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he'll say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he'll say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, therefore behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. 
Isaiah points out that when God had given the spirit of stupor, the spirit of sleep, eyes that wouldn't see, ears that wouldn't hear, it wasn't just that He had gone around and picked people that He just wouldn't let understand. These were folks who had denied His Word. Folks who had turned away from it, who refused to look at it, refused to read it, refused to understand, and they wouldn't do what He said. And so God says, I gave them a spirit of stupor. Why is it that He did this to them? Because they wouldn't obey Him. And so as Paul talks about us and wants us to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, it's not just about God turning a switch in our, in our minds and in our hearts. It's about us actually doing what He says. A parallel passage to what Paul prayed in Ephesians can be found in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Paul wrote there, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Continuing in chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it yet. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like these, like mere men? You see the contrast that Paul is making there? Those who are spiritual versus those who are carnal. Those who are heavenly versus those who are earthly. Wisdom belongs to those who focus on the spiritual. And there's to be a distinction between God's people and the people of the world. And we are to be different from the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20, Paul said, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. We ought to be infants and naive when it comes to evil but we should be grown-ups and mature when it comes to our thinking. Exactly the opposite of the world. The world is well-versed in evil, but not so mature in their thinking. Paul prays that we would have a heart of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. How do we get that? Look in James. In the book of James, chapter 1, beginning at about verse 5. In James chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, James wrote, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If we want to have wisdom, we need to pray to God in faith, believing that He will give it to us. And I'll just give you a little note here. I remember somebody asking me one time, you know, I, I pray that God would give me wisdom, and I keep getting all these problems that I don't know what to do with. 
I said, well, that's what you get for praying for wisdom. Because how do you think we get it? We get wisdom through experience. But God will give it to us, even if He doesn't give it to us the way we actually wanted Him to. But pray in faith. The second thing we need to do, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, is we need to look into the Word. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul talked about what he had written. He said, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. How do we gain wisdom and understanding? By getting to the Word. By studying. By reading. By learning what God has said. And then if we want to have wisdom... We need to be different than those folks in Isaiah chapter 29 that we read about just moments ago. We need to do what we study and what we learn in Scripture. And when we follow that pattern, praying to God for wisdom, studying His Word and doing what we learn, then we receive wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Eyes that see and ears that hear. And God will give us a spirit of revelation and knowledge and enlighten the eyes of our heart. And why is this important? I can tell you why. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. How do we receive life and godliness? How do we receive everything involved in that? By having the knowledge of Christ. That's why it's important for us to pray for this and to work toward this. This should be our goal. That God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him and that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. But the second thing that He prayed for is that we would know what is the hope of our calling. Again, Paul is contrasting those who are in Christ and those who are in the world and he wants us to know what is our hope. Lots of people contrast those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. They'll take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, they'll learn, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And they'll look in Matthew chapter 7, and as it talks about the straight and narrow way that we're supposed to follow. And then they look at those in the world, and they realize, the folks in the world get to do whatever they want. They get to do whatever they please. Any sin they want to commit, any pleasure they want to enjoy, they get to do it. But we Christians, we've got to be prisoners of Christ. We've got to be servants of God. We've got to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. And they see that contrast and they decide, forget it, it's not worth it. But Paul is pointing out that we need to look beyond that in our contrast between those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. Because you see, those who are in Christ have a hope from his calling. What hope do those in the world have? In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Remember, Ephesians 2.12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. What is their hope? Well, maybe today they get to do whatever they want, but there's going to come a time when according to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 27, all they can look forward to is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. That's the hope of the world. Judgment. But we who are in Christ have a better hope. We have a hope 
of salvation. If we take a look at Acts, chapter 23 and verse 6. In Acts chapter 23 and verse 6, Paul, as he was before the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the council, began crying out, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. What is our hope? Our hope is that when we die, we will be resurrected. And this hope is not a whimsical wish. It's a firm expectation based upon the Word and promises of God. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul wrote there, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. What's our hope? Our hope is that it's not about this life. It's about what's coming later. And the eternal life that we can have in Christ which God has promised. Look back in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul there wrote, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel." This is the hope that is laid up for us. The problem that so many people have, though, is they just can't look past this life. Go into Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. He says the hope in which we're saved is one we don't see. We're not saved in a hope that everything will be rosy for us down here. We're saved in a hope that after this life is over, everything will be well for those who have served the Lord. We've got to look past what's going on down here. The problem is a lot of folks just can't look past the narrow and straight path. A lot of folks can't look past the difficulties of this life and see the unseen. And see what Paul says there in Romans chapter 8. And verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that's what we're supposed to be looking at. That is our hope. And in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 6:19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. When we have this hope, when we see this hope of His calling, and are able to look past this life, and look to the unseen, that is when we can have the anchor that no matter what happens to us, we'll be with Christ. And then in the end, we will always be with Christ. But Paul continued on, not only does he want the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, not only does he want us to know what is the hope of our calling, he says he wants us to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. One of the biggest distractions that we have in this world from serving the Lord is riches. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, 
Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we can look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. When our goals are bound around material things, we're going to struggle. Paul wants us to know, as he prayed there for the Ephesians, that the riches of Christ are far greater excuse me, than any of the riches that we might have in this world. And he said, I, I pray that you'll know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you think would become Christians today if God sent a letter to the world saying, all right, here's the deal. Everybody who is baptized into Christ today gets a million dollars, the house of their dreams, a car that they want, low gas prices, and a great yearly income. Do you think we'd have any seats empty in here today? Of course not. In fact, a lot of us would say, well, maybe my first one didn't count. I want to get baptized in this new deal. But you know, the sad thing about it is is that Christ has actually offered us far greater riches than all of that. All of those things perish with the using. All of those things can be stolen and taken away from us. All of those things can be destroyed. How many people south of us no longer have any hope in their possessions? But Christ has offered us something that cannot be taken away. Something that endures for eternity. Something that grows as we use it. He's offered us salvation and forgiveness and a home in heaven. Those are the riches He's given us. And Paul is saying, I I pray that you'll be able to see that. You remember Moses... In Hebrews chapter 11, here is Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, raised in Pharaoh's household all the riches that he had there and all the things that he could make use of. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproaches of Christ Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why did he think that? Because he was looking to the reward. When we stand before God in judgment, do you think we are going to care what kind of house we lived in? What kind of car we drove? What kind of job we had? When we're standing before God in judgment, all we're going to care about is Will He be merciful to me? Have I submitted to Him? Look, I know it's not wrong if God blesses you. If you're seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and He blesses you with all kinds of things, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But when that is our goal, when that's what we're striving for and shooting for, it's going to distract us. But when we can focus on the riches of heaven, that is when, as Colossians 3.2 says, we'll be able to 
focus on heavenly things, not earthly things. That is when, as Matthew chapter 6 says, we'll be able to lay up treasures in heaven where moth doesn't eat and rust doesn't destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. That is when, as 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, we'll be able to lay up for ourselves a good foundation in heaven. That's when we'll be able to do that. When we see the riches of the glory of the inheritance in His saints. And then Paul continues with his final prayer here. The fourth prayer. That we'll know what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Here's my question. What has God done for us? What has God done for you? There are a whole lot of people. So take a look at all the things that we've gone through and they turn and they complain to God. Why haven't you given me this nice house that I want? Why haven't you blessed me with this? Why did you let my loved ones die from that sickness? Why have you continued to allow me to be sick? Why did you let me lose my job? And they turn to God as if to say, what have you done for me lately? And I'm not sure that we realize this, but when we say these kinds of things, what we're saying to God is, God, what you've done for me is not enough. If you want me to serve you, I've got to have more. But let's think about what God has done for us. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19, he said, I pray that you'll know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about, verse 20, in Christ, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What has God done for us? He sent His Son to die for us and then raised Him up to see Him in the heavenly places, to have power over all authority and rule and dominion and every name that is named. And then in verse 22, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What's God done for us? He established His church, a body which we get to be a part of even though we don't deserve it. And then in chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He sent His Son to die. He lifted His Son up. He established the church. And then through His grace, He has taken our sins away. And then, in verse 6, "...and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Look at what He's done for us. Who else has done this much? Who else has died to save us? Who else has taken our sins away? Nobody. And yet how many people will look to those who have not done nearly this much, to parents, professors, pastors, priests, peers, and will devote allegiance to them 
instead of to God. Paul says, I pray that you will know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us. God does His use, use His power for us. And we've got to rest in that and realize that He's done enough for us. And He doesn't know us anymore. But what He's done is what we need. And instead of looking at what He hasn't done, we need to recognize what He has. And when we see that, when we see that love and that power that He's directed toward us, like 1 John 4.19 says, we will love Him because He has loved us. Do we know the power, the surpassing power of His greatness toward us? These were Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. These were his goals. That they would have a heart of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That they would know the hope of his calling. The riches of the inheritance of his saints. And the greatness of his power toward us who believe. These ought to be our goals and our prayers. Because when it is and when we're working toward it, this is when we'll grow and be saved in Christ. And I can tell you now, there will come a day for all of us when these things will be all that mattered. It would be beneficial to us if we let that day be today. I hope this lesson about Paul's prayers for the Ephesians was beneficial to you. Let's remember what we learned. First, we learned that Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Second, Paul prayed that they would know what is the hope of Christ's calling. Third, Paul prayed that they would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And finally, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This needs to be our prayer for our lives as Christians and for the congregations of which we are a part. If you have any questions about Paul's prayers, about the letter to the Ephesians, about the Bible in general, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, would you please give us a call, 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone gave you this lesson. If so, may I encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there that you are free to download, both in audio and outline format. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.